BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Princess Diana's death 25 years ago brought a nation to its knees and changed the course of history, even in America. Today, we look back at the princess's life and how her legacy is as important now as it's ever been. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's Chief Royal Correspondent. And I'm Kristen Meinzer, a royal watcher based in the US. And this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello, Jack. Hello, listeners. And hello to the thousands of people around the world lucky enough to have met Princess Diana. Harry and William's mother died aged 36 in a car crash in Paris 25 years ago at the end of August in 1997, when the royal brothers were just 12 and 15. Nobody grieved as profoundly as them, but her passing triggered a wave of public mourning never seen in Britain before or since. The tragedy brought Britain to a standstill, and in one of Prime Minister Tony Blair's most famous epithets, he described her as the people's princess. Yet, 25 years later, Diana's legacy is as powerful as it has ever been. Indeed, in so many ways, Diana is still with us, in the media, in fashion, in diplomatic efforts, and more. But let's start out with the most obvious way Diana's legacy lives on, through her sons. Yes, uh... We all know that William, in his teenage years, in his university years, was the spitting image of Diana. But I would argue at this point, we see Diana mostly through Harry. Like Diana, he wears his feelings on his sleeve. He knows how to work a room like Diana. And he brings a sort of star power to everything he does, as Diana did. And he mentions her a lot as well. I mean, she was kind of the third unseen person in the Oprah Winfrey interview. Um, He he talked about how uh, she was, you know, he said, I've got a lot of my mum in me. Um, Diana is clearly a huge part of Harry's life. And he has also talked about fearing that the history would repeat itself in terms of Meghan's experiences with the media and also her suicidal thoughts. He didn't want to lose his wife in the way that he lost his mother. Um, we could hear through Harry how how Diana was essentially taking care of him financially from beyond the grave, because obviously he has his inheritance. Um, it almost seems as if she was trying to give him the life that she was on the verge of having herself in the end, a life of independence, activism and adventure. And also she did actually at one stage consider a move to America. Yes, um, I think a lot of people don't know this or they don't remember this, but Diana's great-grandmother was a dollar bride. And if you want to know what a dollar bride is, watch Downton Abbey. It's essentially an American heiress who marries for a title in the UK. And um, yeah, Princess Diana descended from a dollar bride. So there you go. Why would she not want to move back to the land of her ancestors? But (laughs) let's also talk about Diana's grandchildren. We have George, Charlotte, Louis, Archie, and Lilibet. Uh, Princess Charlotte's full name is actually Charlotte Elizabeth Diana, and Lilibet's full name is Lilibet Diana Mountbatten-Windsor. So Diana lives on in her grandchildren as well, uh, not just because they're her descendants, but in their actual names. 
And beyond her family, I think Diana was a model for socially progressive campaigning in the modern era. You know, when we look at how she was the first royal to embrace people living with HIV and AIDS, um, you know, famously taking the hand of an HIV uh, patient at a point when a lot of people felt that that could transmit the virus. You know, that was a hugely iconic moment, not just in Diana's personal history, but in the history of the royal family and the history of the royal family opening up to, to the public and making themselves accessible in a way that they had never been before. We see that to this day. We saw it when Meghan first joined the royal family and Harry and Meghan were getting, uh, were hugging people. You know, this year William uh, hugged a man who was overcome with emotion on a trip to Glasgow. Um, Diana treated people with compassion. She advocated for them. Um, and she practiced diplomacy with Mother Teresa, with Nelson Mandela and other luminaries. Um, she also got down on the same level as children and treated their concerns as if they mattered. Yeah, which is... So next level for a royal to do that. When she started doing that, you know, maybe royals would accept flowers from a child when they arrived on a diplomatic visit to another country. But Diana, she would visit children's hospitals and so on and sit with them. She would deliberately wear jewelry that uh, the children could play with. Uh, She would wear clothes that the children could touch and uh, wanted to get close to them and wanted to listen to what they had to say. She really got down and personal with the kids in a way that showed them compassion and treated them as humans. Unlike other aristocratic people who would treat children as if they should be seen and not heard, Diana never saw children that way. I think it's also really important just to remember how much courage it must have taken to be a royal rebel at the time when nobody had really engaged with the concept of, you know, somebody marrying into the royal family being this big rebel figure before. Um, She obviously felt very isolated for a lot of this time because she, you know, she at one point told Max Hastings, former editor of the Daily Telegraph, that the marriage with Prince Charles was held from day one. Um, And for much of that time, she suspected the affair with Camilla. Um, But she still found it in herself to kind of um, put her head above the parapet and do things differently. And she did get some criticism at various points from the media. She also got adulation and praise too. Um, But she basically, I think, it, it feels like she found a space in which she could kind of project elements of her personality that might have been kind of squashed a little bit behind closed doors. Yeah. And her personality, you know, one element of that was definitely her fashion. Uh, We still talk about Diana's fashion today. I have gone to exhibits, including at Kensington Palace, to see her most iconic outfits on display. People are still fascinated with how she dressed, not just at those big, you know, dazzling events like her revenge dress that we all know about or, you know, dancing at the White House with John Travolta. We also talk about her athleisure. She was kind of, you know, the princess of athleisure before athleisure was even called athleisure. One of the things that we know about today is that whenever she went to or from her gym, she would always wear the same sweatshirt for Virgin Airlines and biker shorts. And uh, that wasn't just a fashion choice. It was very cleverly a way to be too boring for the paparazzi to want to shoot her because she would be in the same outfit every day. So why shoot Diana every single day in the same outfit on the way to the gym. It's not any more interesting than the day before, right? Right. And uh, Kristen, I mean, I might be losing the plot here, but you're talking about outfits on display, outfits on display. It's choking my memory of something. Have you ever worn a Princess Diana outfit? <gasps> oh my God. You know what, Jack? 
you and I are both wearing one right now. What, what really? <laughs> oh, this down. old thing. Look down at yourself. <laughs> this old thing. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody here can see it, but both Jack and I are now at this very moment in the sweltering summer heat of London and Brooklyn, New York. We are wearing our black sheep jumpers, uh, very thick wool sweaters that have all of those white sheep and then the famous one black sheep uh, on, on the sweater. <laughs> but this this is a revenge look, isn't it? This is what you would term a Princess Diana revenge look. So this is a, a jumper that she wore to kind of communicate a message, which was that obviously she felt she was the black sheep of the royal family. And now a company called Rowing Blazers has recreated this jumper. Um, and you can buy it if you want it. Me and Kristen both have one. Um, and it is so hot that I would recommend you wear it in January, not in August. Yes. <laughs> and you don't need to wear anything else with it. No winter coat or anything. <laughs> just, just wear this jumper. It is so warm. And it is a, a fashion statement because it's, you know, it's a Diana statement. Diana was so out there with her fashions as well, that wasn't it? It wasn't she? I mean, I, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I liked every single one of her outfits. Like it was the 80s at the time, and some of them are just out there. But obviously, her iconic outfits are incredible, and the the best pictures of Diana are, <coughs> you know, they are they are fashion moments that endure to this day, and that I think people who weren't alive during the Diana era actually love as much as those who look back on it as nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And one thing that I think is great is we see the impact of this fashion still today. We see variations of it um, because, you know, fashion always goes in cycles. We see uh, Diana's daughters-in-law and their outfits constantly being compared to what Diana wore back in the day. Like, oh, look at Kate paying tribute to Diana or look at Megan wearing something that really echoes something uh, Princess Diana wore at this event. So we talked a lot about fashion, and there is actually one piece of royal jewelry which, uh, in in many ways, will keep Diana's legacy alive even in the future monarchies that are to come. Because obviously, Harry um, inherited Princess Diana's engagement ring. Yes, the famous sapphire ring surrounded by diamonds. But as we all know. That ring is not on Meghan's finger. It is on Kate's finger because he generously gave that ring to William so that William could use it to propose to the future queen. So that means that there may well be a time in the future when Kate is Queen Catherine and is wearing Princess Diana's ring. So a piece of Princess Diana will be sitting on the British throne where she was destined to be. And I, well, it's definitely, I mean, it's been suggested by Ken Wolfe, former Royal Protection Officer, that this was, you know, not an accident, basically, that um, Harry gave William this ring precisely because he wanted Princess Diana to in symbolically take her place on the throne that she was supposed to sit on. Oh, I love that symbolism. I love it. Those royals and that symbolism. They know how to do it, don't they? It's always the symbolism. All the true, all the real messages are in the symbolism. Yes. And we have to talk about Diana's impact where we still see her living on in the media in depictions of her and depictions inspired by her. Let's talk about some of those, Jack. Yeah, I mean, she lives on in uh, in the media in, well, for example, Wonder Woman, Gal Gadot based her depiction of Wonder Woman on Princess Diana. Yes, and then, of course, there is The Crown. The season focused on Diana's early years with Charles were so popular 
that Diana was regularly in the headlines again for a new generation. On both sides of the pond, there was a renewed interest in Princess Diana because of the crown and a lot of sympathy for everything that she went through. A lot of people uh, writing editorials at the Daily Mail saying, no, no, it wasn't that bad. Stop making it look like Diana was a victim. And then people also pushing back saying, yes, she was a victim. This was terrible. (laughs) But renewed debates about what Diana's life was like. And coming again this November, because there's a new series of The Crown about to drop. Um, and somebody, somebody at either Netflix or The Crown has a very warped sense of humour because they insist on releasing it in November, which is Prince Charles's birthday. It's not a yes. birthday present for Prince Charles, this. This is not what <laughs> Prince Charles wants on his birthday. Guys, rethink. Um, but yes, it's all going to play out again. You know, it's, uh, it's going to come back again. And every time it does, um, it just, for Charles, it kind of just tugs him back, you know, pulls him back into the era that, at which his reputation took this kind of devastating blow. He was in December 1991, 81% of the British public, according to Ipsos Mori polling, thought that Charles would make a good king. Um, Then in 1992, Andrew Morton's biography of Diana came out and um, revealed his affair with Camilla for the first time. By the time of their divorce in 1996, uh, 42% of the British public thought that Charles would make a good king. And to this day, 32% of the British public think that Charles will make a good king. So, I mean, this is also kind of part of Diana's legacy in a way, isn't it? I mean, Diana's legacy is also this reputational body blow to Charles's reputation. Yeah, but Charles did that to himself. Let's be real here. Diana did not force Charles to have a years-long affair with Camilla, but she did speak openly about how much it pained her, about how there were three people in that marriage. But Charles also did a lot of that to himself. But also, to go back to the media again, media depictions have not shied away from depicting that on the screen as well. And one more version of that I have to point out is the film Spencer, which came out last year starring Kristen Stewart. That film was highly celebrated. It was viewed by a lot of people. And it really, once again, showed Diana feeling like an outsider in her own royal family and Uh, feeling like a victim and feeling unhinged a lot of the time, feeling gaslit and so on. And so it's hard not to watch movies like that or watch The Crown and want to take sides with Diana, not Charles. Now, we've talked a little bit about depictions in the media, but Diana also changed the media, or rather her death changed the media, because on both sides of the Atlantic, in Britain, it led to changes to the editor's code of practice. The, the press At the time, it was the Press Complaints Commission, which regulated the UK press. It's now IPSO, but it now has um, a section about uh, harassment and persistent pursuit, which is designed to stop the paparazzi from following people, basically, uh, because obviously Diana died in a car crash while the paparazzi were in pursuit. Um, and in America, it led to a introduction of an anti-paparazzi law um, called California Civil Code 1708.8. So she has actually, you know, that law endures to this day and is there for celebrities if they want to try to take on the paparazzi. So that is another real uh, piece of like tangible, you know, really tangible chunk of how um, the modern world has been shaped by Diana and her story. Yeah. And it should be noted also that uh, William, when he was at university at St. Andrews, there was an agreement made with the press that they would leave him alone. And I'm not sure if they would have respected that privacy had Diana not died the way she had. But, you know, because she did die the way she did, being pursued by paparazzi, 
I, I really think that's why the media agreed we will leave William alone while he's studying at university. That's absolutely true. And the way that the the way that the tabloids and the press deal with um, paparazzi pictures of the royals is very different um, to this day. You know, they uh, they probably contrary to popular belief do actually take seriously the requirement that um, pictures should not have been obtained through following or chasing. Um, and paparazzi photographers who do supply pictures to um, British newspapers will often be required to provide a coherent account, often in writing, of how they obtained the picture if it wasn't at an authorized event um and if they if the account they provide basically is that they followed the car um then those newspapers are obliged to basically reject those that set of pictures um and they could be ruled against by ipso if they do not so it, it's a really tangible change to the, the nature of the british media which you know brought was I think almost unthinkable before that point. Um, the media, I mean, people still talk about the tabloid press and the British press being incredibly powerful, but I mean, the power that they had in the 1990s was so far beyond um, the power that they have now in the in the internet age. Um, you know, it, I think it would, I don't think that anything else, that anything that was any less completely gargantuan and momentous than Princess Diana's death could have produced that change. Yeah. Well, we are going to take a quick break, but before we do, a reminder to rate us and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. When we're back, how Diana's sons are trying to shape her narrative today. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hi everyone, we're back and looking at one of the most dramatic periods of Diana's life, her 1995 BBC Panorama interview in which she famously discussed Charles' affair with Camilla, saying there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. Yes, the tell-all is newly controversial in the modern era, and Prince William described it as a false narrative that should never be shown again. And William's calls, it seems, have been heard over at the BBC, where the Director General has said it will never be shown again in full and even clips will not be licensed to other broadcasters. The BBC may show segments on rare occasions when when they believe it's justified and I think even then it's going to need like executive-level sign-off in order to be used. Yes, but not everybody is on board with the BBC's decision. Some critics have accused William of trying to muzzle Diana after her death, Meanwhile, William insists that the interview was obtained in an unethical manner. Walk us through it all, Jack. 
So this all relates to a guy called Martin Bashir, who is a controversial journalist for a number of reasons. He did a whole thing on Michael Jackson that also blew up and was really controversial. But basically, he tricked Diana um, and her brother, Charles Spencer, by supplying forged financial documents that made it look like both their staffs, in fact, um, were in the pay of the media and maybe even the security services. Um, William says that not only tricked them into giving the interview, but changed what Diana said on camera. And he he said it also further damaged the relationship with, between Diana and Charles. He even linked the whole deception to Diana's death two years later. Um, but some, including including Diana's secret biographer, Andrew Morton, say that William is basically stopping her from telling the story that she spent her whole life trying to articulate. And, of course, a lot of what she said in that interview um, was already contained in Andrew Morton's book, which was published in 1992, three years before she ever sat down with Martin Bashir. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of this is William speaking as a child not as somebody who as is an adult who has distance from the story. He's worried that it's hurting his dad's feelings. He's saying that, you know, this hurt the marriage, but he wasn't in their marriage. He doesn't really know what it was like to be his mom. He doesn't know how much pain his mom was in. And um, I, I just think William, in my opinion, might be overstepping a little bit here because was she further damaging her marriage by saying these things? No, as you just said, Everything she said in that interview was pretty much already in her book. I think that I'm really unclear about what it is that Prince William doesn't want to be repeated, because obviously the main line that people remember from that um, sit-down interview was the line that we've just discussed about Camilla and the affair. Now, obviously that affair happened, so that was true. So if William sees any issue with the way that Diana presented that, it's really not clear what it is he's actually saying. And the message that, you know, it's a false narrative, I don't think has actually come across. Everybody knows that Charles had an affair with Camilla, and nobody perceives anything about that to be false. So it then becomes a case of what else is contained within the interview. I mean, if anything, William's words compelled me to kind of sift through the whole thing, looking for what he might have meant. Um, And I think there is a bit of a risk here for William that it, it could actually wind up driving broadcasters to um, to versions of Diana's accounts that were actually never intended for publication. So, you know, okay, uh, it probably did play on Diana's paranoia. Martin Bashir certainly played on her paranoia. And around about the same time, she told her lawyer, Lord Mishcon, that she feared that she would be assassinated. Um, but at the same time, if you can't run that 1995 interview and you're putting together a documentary of Diana, well, what's the first thing you're going to ask yourself? Well, what other material is out there that I could use? And the two most obvious places to turn are the tapes that Diana recorded for Andrew Morton, where everything she says is pretty much in there already. That's audio recordings that can be broadcast, and it is all expressed so much more strongly and so much more powerfully. She talks, for example, about um, a suicide attempt in which she threw herself down the stairs at um, at Sandringham while she was pregnant with William. You know, there's a lot of really personal, sensitive stuff in there. And then the other one is the speech coaching tapes that she recorded with a man called Peter Settlin, who was an actor who was helping prepare her for the Martin, well, for the Martin Bashir interview before it was. You know, before she'd agreed to give it to Bashir. Uh, in there, she talks about 
you know, going to the Queen asking for help dealing with Charles's affair and the Queen saying, oh, I don't know what you should do. You know, Charles is ridiculous. Um, she says that Prince Philip um, told Charles that he was allowed to, uh, that you know, to just give it a try for five years with Diana. And if, if not, then he could go back to Camilla, uh, basically encouraging him to have an affair. Like everything that's in the settling tapes is so much, so much worse. So if you stop people from accessing that BBC footage, which was what Diana intended to come out, there is the risk that they turn to these things that when, that Diana recorded privately that were never intended for publication. Yeah. And let's not forget that Prince Charles has plenty of his own incriminating recordings. Uh, who can forget Tampon Gate? He really did want to be a tampon so he could live inside <laughs> Camilla forever. I mean, th- there's more than enough evidence that the affair was real, that he was breaking Diana's heart, that things were not happy between them. Uh, just Trying to bury this BBC interview does not get rid of all of that other evidence, including the evidence uh, that is just Charles's own voice. Yeah, indeed. I mean, he confirmed in his own interview with the BBC in 1994 that the affair had happened. You know, it's the classic royal thing to do, which is to basically ask for the outcome you want without actually explaining fully um, what it is, you know, what the concern is, like what specifically is the false narrative. It's not at all clear to me. The only thing I really found in that BBC interview was Diana talking about her staff. So she did talk a little bit about her concerns that her staff might be against her. You know, there's been this long-standing issue about the, uh, Diana's clash with the men in grey, as she called them. But I mean, that stuff was also, you know, that was part of what she said to Andrew Morton. I mean, that wasn't new in 1995 that she had a mistrust of her staff. And in fact, the pre- precise reason why Martin Bashir went down that path as part of a way to manipulate her was because she he knew already that she was suspicious of her stuff. He was playing on suspicions that already existed. So Diana post-interview said that she was happy with everything she said and William has given this slightly unclear dismissal of the whole thing as false when people in their heart of hearts know that elements of that interview were in fact true. So there isn't a clear message that comes through from William. He's kind of got what he wants in the sense that the BBC is saying they're not going to license it to other broadcasters, which will cause problems for future documentary makers. But the strategic goal is still completely unclear to me. Like what narrative is he trying to dispel? Yeah. And my take on it is the world loves Diana. The world does see her as their princess, as their people's princess. The world has a lot of empathy and a lot of sadness for what she went through. And in her own words, she was in a lot of agony. Why erase that? That is part of the reason why we have that empathy for her is because of that honesty, because of her disclosing what she was going through. So if William is trying to rewrite the narrative, is he trying to erase the fact that she felt pain? Is he trying to erase the fact that she was open with her feelings? What what exactly is he trying to erase? Why is he trying to shape the narrative in this way? And when I say in this way, I don't even know what way he's trying to shape it into. Mm. I would also say that, honestly, if I was Diana, I would have been paranoid too. I mean, like, <laughs> so, okay, she had private conversations with a James Gilby, who certainly was very close to her, um, quite probably a lover, which were then uh, leaked, you know, they were leaked to the media by means of being picked up by these people who they were called at the time radio hams, who would kind of like monitor shortwave radio frequencies and suddenly picked up this conversation being had between Diana and James Gilby. But the only thing was technology, you know, uh, specialists analyzed this footage and said that there was no way 
that James Gilby and Diana should both have been equally audible when they lived so far apart. So it created the impression that there was a different person listening at both ends of the recording. In other words, somebody picked it up at Diana's end and somebody picked it up at James Gilby's end, recorded both, put them together and then broadcast that out on the airwaves for these radio hams to pick up. Now, if you've seen that play out in the newspapers, I'm sorry, like, I defy you to say that you would not have been paranoid after going through that experience. Like, I would have been so paranoid. Yeah. And even today, if we look at 90% of the stories about the royals, the quotes being given are by a quote unquote palace insider. So there are people in the palace constantly leaking things to the press. So I wouldn't even call that paranoia, I would call that informed suspicion. You are well informed that you should be suspicious of your staff because they are constantly leaking things to the tabloids. I, I don't think that's just paranoia. That That's absolutely well-founded suspicion. There's also Andrew Morton wrote a follow-up book about the Queen in which he um, he actually wrote that when she first heard about the crash that would later take Diana's life. So at this point, as far as the Queen was concerned, Diana was still alive. Her first reaction was somebody must have greased the brakes. So he suggests that the Queen herself, you know, wasn't you know aware of the possibility uh, that some untoward event might take place involving Diana. So. You know, up to a point, I think a certain amount of paranoia is justifiable. And you do have to ask, you know, this is this is honestly a piece of history. It changed the course of the royal family. And um, it was after Diana gave this interview that they actually officially divorced. Charles and Diana had been separated since 1992 after Andrew Morton's book. And following the Panorama interview, they later got divorced in 1996, the, the year after. Um, that changed the course of history because... Um, Diana was then much more of an outsider. I mean, she probably felt like an outsider for much longer, but she was a, a proper outsider after that point. At some stage, she dispensed with her. And I think this is partly what William was driving at when he tried to link the interview to her death. You know, at some point, she dispensed with her metropolitan police protection detail um, because she didn't trust them. And that ultimately meant that on the day she uh, of the car crash in Paris, she didn't have police protecting her. She had these kind of, uh, private security team um, who were all ex-army. And there's this theory put forward by Ken Wharf, her former bodyguard, that basically the Metropolitan Police would have approached the whole thing completely differently and the crash wouldn't have happened if she'd had a Metropolitan Police team protecting her. Um, so it is a part of history. It changed everything. And that means I don't really see how you can strike it from the record in that way. Yeah. I, I would say, William, be a little bit more like Harry when it comes to your mom's narrative. Talk about what a great person she was. Focus on how you still love her, how you see her in your children. Um, yeah, take take a cue from Harry and don't fixate so much on this. This is already out there. You can't take it back. It's already out there. We're going to take one more quick break. But before we do, a reminder to follow us on Twitter. I am at Jack underscore Royston and Kristen is at Kristen Meinzer. Uh, we always have royal updates there as well as my latest stories for Newsweek. When we're back, what we like to think Diana would be up to if she was alive today. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. 
VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Hi, everyone. We're back with one last reflection on the People's Princess. Jack, what do you think Diana would be doing if she were alive today? Do you know what, Kristen? I think this would be Diana's time because so much of what's happening now with social media campaigning and the rise of movement politics is everything that Diana was about in the 1990s. Oh, I love that idea. I, I, I agree with you. I think she would be living her best life right now. She would be speaking to the issues she always cared about. Uh, And I also think she would just love seeing the fact that her sons have grown up into such strong men. You know, they were little boys when she died, but to see them grow up, uh, to see her grandchildren, I think she would have loved having her grandchildren around. But I sometimes also wonder, you know, would she have been remarried and had more kids? She was so young when she died. She was just a few weeks into being age 36. And that is an age where, you know, right now in 2022, a lot of people aren't even married yet if they decide to get married at all. You know, it's when a lot of people are just starting their lives is when they turn 36. So, um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if she would have, you know, eventually after, you know, several more love affairs, maybe would have gotten married again. And who knows, maybe there would have been one or two more kids down the road. I I don't know. I can definitely see that. I mean, Diana has always seemed like somebody who wanted to be loved. And um, I can definitely picture her finding the right person at some at some point along the way i mean there was there's always the there's the surgeon who she dated for a period of time hasnet khan the love of her life she loved him yeah she absolutely did and who's to say that something wouldn't have happened and that that wouldn't have you know got back together and worked at some point so it you know it, it could even have been that that they found their way back to each other um i think you know she would she was adored by men across the world of the rich and famous. So I'm sure she would have found somebody who she liked as much as all those people liked her. Yeah. And I'm sure she would have just had lots of fabulous red carpet moments. You know, she would have been invited to uh, film openings and theater openings. She always was a great lover of the arts. She loved dance. She loved theater. So I could see her, you know, having these splashy moments on the red carpet, maybe coming on stage with Elton John every once in a while and maybe singing a duet with him or something, you know, being out there and living her fabulous best life without the fist of the palace, you know, on her neck at all times, uh, being able to have some fun. And of course, we talked about earlier that there was a point when it was suggested that she might be considering a move to America. So she she might she might have been out in America living yeah living the Hollywood lifestyle out there. And also, you know, she would probably have been showing up for her sons, helping them with their projects. Um, you know, you could picture her, let's say, 
Obviously, if Diana was still alive, it would have changed everything and both William and Harry would be very different people than they are. But let's assume that everything continued as it happened. She would have been with Harry out in America. You know, he would almost certainly have moved to live very near her. She would have been there helping uh, helping bring up Archie and Lilibet. Um, and she would probably have been helping William with Earthshot as well. I can see her and Doria, you know, maybe doing some yoga together. Um and then playing with the grandkids because, you know, Diana always really loved physical fitness and Doria also really loves physical fitness. I could see the two of them, you know, doing some, you know, happy babies and down dogs together and then playing with the grandkids. And then obviously at some point sitting down to watch the new series of The Crown. Yes. <laughs> oh, I, I, I think it would have been wonderful to see what her life could have been like and um, it really was a life cut short, so short, you know, 36 is so young. It's so, so young. And so much, so much of what's happened since has, has been defined by, defined by Diana. And, you know, William, I think said on his wedding day that she was, she, he felt her presence. Harry talks in similar terms. I mean, she is still today. Uh, she has lived on as part of the Royal story, hasn't she? She is a massive part of the Royal story today, just as she was in the nineties. Yes, she is. Obviously, we would all love if she were actually here in person. But yes, Jack, her legacy and her presence are still very much with us. And that is it for this very special episode of The Royal Report, all about Diana and her legacy. Be sure to join us every other week when we visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives, and riff of all things royal. Until next time, I'm Kristen Meinzer. And I'm Jack Royston. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. And a curtsy to you all. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro... Cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.